Hey, everybody. Thank you, Jose. Thank you so much, everybody. Good morning. It's a beautiful day outside, and we are going to have a blast in Revelation chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, turn there to Revelation chapter 21, and, and it's going to be an exciting morning because you've done all the hard work, all the 20 chapters that you've just slaved through almost with some of those difficult passage. Now's the payoff. If, if you were listening to the 1812 Overture, this is, this is when the cannons go off. This is the fun stuff. And if you think, ah, that guy's a little excited today, it's not because I've had too much coffee. I actually purposely limited my caffeine intake today because I knew I was going to be so giddy about chapter 21. Because this, this is not only the end of the book of Revelation, but it's the end of the entire Bible. And this passage literally is where I go to when I have a tough time. Again, my name is Steve Marshman. I'm married to my wife, Vicki. And I have to tell you that these pages in, in my Bible, Revelation 21, these pages are starting to get worn out. They're getting a little thin. And when they wear out, I'm going to have to buy another Bible. But I want that to be true of you today. I want this passage to have deep meaning to you because it has deep meaning to the entire story of God. These are so critical, so good. When, when I have a tough day or Vicky's having a tough chemotherapy session, I just meditate on them and I'm encouraged and I get hope and I hope that happens to you today. So let's read just the first three verses of Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 and 3. We'll start with those. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's take a look at verse 3 again because I truly believe if we, in the 21st century, if we read verse 3 and we fully grasp what's going on, one of two things were, would happen. You'd, you would jump out of your chair and would, you would shout hallelujah or you would fall to your knees and you would cry tears of joy. One of those two things would happen because look what it says. I heard a loud voice from the throne and, and the angel saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. God's going to dwell with his people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He'll be their God. That's not the way life is right now. Because there's this Satan around. But in this time, in the new heaven and the new earth, we've done the hard work of the 20 chapters. Satan's gone. Evil's gone. And there's no more sea. That's what that means. So here God himself will be our God and we'll be his people. This is God's design. This is the way it was supposed to be from the very, very beginning. Back in, in the Garden of Eden, remember Adam and Eve walking around? You remember who else was walking around in the garden with Adam and Eve? God was. We don't know what that's like. But we will. In the new creation, we're going to live in the full presence of God just like Adam and Eve did in, in, in the garden so 
We have to look at this passage and try to figure out how are we going to react to this. Now, if you were here for Easter, remember, Jose covered verses 1 through 8 at Easter. So we're just going to do a brief review of that and then skip down to verse 9 in a second. But we need, to, we need to rewind a little bit and do a little bit of review so we get on track with what's going on here. Because this passage says a couple of key things right up front. You read new heaven and new earth. And for some of us, we see that and we read that and we think, brand new, brand new earth, brand new heaven. But, but I don't think that's quite right. I agree with most scholars that say we should think restored earth or renewed earth. And it's a major restoration. We're going to see that in a second. And the new earth, it's going to be spectacular. And the most spectacular thing about the new earth is going to be this, God himself will dwell with us. That's what's going to be amazing about the new heaven and the new earth. God himself will dwell with us. So quick show of hands. If you've watched more HTTV in the last 12 months than you have in the rest of your life because of COVID, anybody? I mean, yeah, come on, put your hands up. You can admit it. Here's some of the shows. House Hunters, Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. If you know what Shiplap is, you've watched that show. The Property Brothers, Homes on Homes, Flipper Flop, Love It or List It. I mean, there's a mind-boggling amount of renovation shows on TV. And why is that? Because we're into restoration. But with God's restoration project, if God had an HDTV show, it would be completely off the charts. When the new earth was revealed, we would be uncontrollably stunned but not because of what the house looks like, not because of the renovation, but when they do the reveal, when you open your eyes or pull back the curtain, God's there. I mean, God himself. And as I already mentioned briefly, there's, it says there's no longer any sea. And if you love the ocean, don't be sad. I do think there'll be oceans in heaven, I really do. What this language of no longer any sea means, it means that there's gonna be no more death, no more pain. And for my wife, no more chemotherapy. Amen to that. Verse 2 and 3, really critical to our understanding. It says the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes from where? Where does it come from? It comes from two places, from heaven and from God. So that's where the, the, the new Jerusalem comes from. And where does it go to? It goes to earth. So we have this mystique in our culture that the the new heaven new earth is somewhere out there you know maybe it's out by pluto or something no it's on earth the new heaven and the the new city comes to earth and there's this metaphor that john picks up on that the new jerusalem is prepared as a bride well what is that about uh the, a city is a bride well this is a wedding scene it, it's a wedding scene the new jerusalem is the marriage of God and his people. That's you and me if we're a follower of Jesus. And God's dwelling place is now with his people. And when you get married, what do you do? You live together, right? You dwell with the person. So this is a full-on marriage between God and his people. Now, a lot of the kids left, but there's still some left, so we're gonna have a pop quiz in honor of the kids going back to class. So here's the pop quiz, kids. Parents and kids, you probably need to help your parents with this, right? Because you're smarter than your parents. You know that, right? Um, was there another time in history 
maybe recent, maybe long ago, was there another time in history when someone or something came from heaven to earth to dwell among us? Kids, the answer is, parents, well, Jesus, right? If you don't know the answer, you always say Jesus, and it's right. Jesus came to earth and dwelled among us for 30 plus years a couple thousand years ago. And now, in this passage, God himself comes to earth to dwell among his people. But this time, it's not for 30 years. It's forever and ever, for all eternity. And where is this happening? In the new Jerusalem, the new holy city that comes down from heaven to earth. So we say this is the, the, the important thing about this passage to understand as we jump into it is that God dwells among his people. But there's more things we want to learn that John explains about the new creation. And there's a couple things. The new creation is this. It's where God's people live in God's presence. That's what the new creation is. That's where God's people live in God's presence. And that's chapter 21 explains all that. But there's more to this story. It's also where God's people experience abundant life. Life so abundant, we can't even imagine how abundant it is. And we'll get to that in the first five verses of chapter 22. And then next week, Hosea will be back for chapter 22 and start to conclude this wonderful book, not only the book of Revelation, but the whole book of the Bible. But for now, we're gonna skip down to verse nine. Skip down to verse nine of chapter 21. We'll continue this story where we get this incredible vision One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, so the angel's talking to John, says to John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And verse 11 starts with, it's shown with the glory of God. So what's happening here is John is starting to describe our eternal home, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is where God's people, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus, this is where we're gonna live forever, in his presence, forever. It's not gonna be boring, friends. It's gonna be full of life because we're with God. And again, we see this bride metaphor, and again, it's super important. And just to remind you that the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, and we know from 2 Corinthians that that metaphor is about the church. The people of the New Jerusalem are God's people, the people of the church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the church, and you're the part of the people of God in the New Jerusalem. And then the rest of the chapter, from verses 11 all the way down to verse 27, there's this incredible, stunning description of our new home, the new Jerusalem, the new holy city. Do you remember the words of Jesus back in John chapter 14? And that passage is when the disciples were freaking out a little bit because Jesus said, I'm, I'm out of here soon. And the disciples didn't like that. We wouldn't either. Like, oh, no, Jesus, stay. But Jesus says, no, I gotta go. And so he's consoling the disciples and he tells them this. He, this is Jesus' words. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so... What I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. Jesus is going there to prepare a place for us. And Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where 
I am. So Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now he uses this metaphor, this language of a, a house and a room. And don't let that confuse you. Uh, we shouldn't think about Jesus making this giant mansion and there's a whole bunch of rooms in there and we're all gonna crowd in there and we're gonna argue over who uses what bathroom. That's not the way it's gonna be. It's just a metaphor Jesus is using to explain to his disciple that he's going to prepare a place. He's going to prepare our eternal home, the new Jerusalem. Now here in this passage, there's a ton of highly significant symbolic imagery. And if you wanna go through it verse by verse, like I said last week, I'd recommend you go to the podcast we have. It's arevelationconversation.com and you can go through verse by verse and get all this cool imagery. But for today, just for time's sake, to be a little bit briefer, what I've done is I've taken those 11, the, the verses 11 through 27 and just compiled them into five summary statements. And, and this is what they are. The New Jerusalem is five things. And then I'll explain them briefly. The, the New Jerusalem is the antithesis of Babylon. It's the antithesis of Babylon. Second, it shines with the glory of God. Third, it depicts one unified people of God. And fourth, the new temple, the new most holy place is seen there. And then fifth and importantly, the new Jerusalem is centered on God and Jesus. So I'm gonna explain those a little bit more just one by one. The first thing is that we need to highlight that the new Jerusalem is a complete opposite the antithesis of Babylon. In, in Michael Gorman's book, it's a book on Revelation, and he, he says it this way. He says, Babylon is the great harlot, a beast. And we've studied about that, right, for, for many weeks. If it, it is infested with demons, it is drunken and murderous, it is a culture of death. But Jerusalem is the bride of the Lamb, full of the presence of God. It provides healing and it's lacking all pain, tears, and death. It is a culture of life. So there's a huge difference between the New Jerusalem and the, and the city of Babylon. Well, the second thing we need to notice that John starts out with right there in verse 11, says it's shown with the glory of God. We don't know what that looks like. And it's, I think it's kind of humorous almost that it seems like John is struggling to, to describe what the glory of God looks like because he's comparing it to precious jewels like jasper and clear crystal. And we don't know what it looks like, but I'm pretty sure when we see it, we're going to go, that's the glory of God. And it's going to just shine brilliantly. And then the third thing, at first you might go, ah, so what? But this is important. There are 12 gates in the new city, and they have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's also 12 foundations, and they have on them the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus. So what's going on here is it's this really cool way for John to get this vision that shows a unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is a way to show that the saints of the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament are part of one people of God. And we, if we're followers of Jesus, we're part of the one people of God. Now, you have to understand for the first century Jew, this was crazy talk. For a first century Jew to think that a Gentile was gonna be in the new Jerusalem, they're like, oh, that's, that's a different thought. 
And we have that today, don't we? In 21st century America, imagine no racism. This is hard to imagine, isn't it? Imagine finally being to a place where blacks and whites live in unity and there is no more hate and there is no more violence and there is no more racism. Not that they're the same, not that we're colorblind. Notice in this passage that the Israelites retain their identity and the apostles retain their identity. And I believe in the New Jerusalem that blacks will retain their identity and whites will retain their identity, but will be one and will be unified, but there'll be no more hate, there'll be no more racism because we're one people of God. And if that doesn't speak to you, maybe this will. Imagine a place where Democrats and Republicans get along and like each other and love each other all the time. Wouldn't that be crazy? I mean, we can't even imagine that. But that's what's happening in the New Jerusalem. One people of God unified around Jesus. Well, the fourth thing I think is just off the charts, exciting and cool, and it's this. The New Jerusalem is the new temple the new most holy place. Now, for some of you, if you don't know the Old Testament, well, I have to explain this, but hopefully we can make this clear. Verse 16 says that the city was laid out as a square as long as it is wide. And then it says that the city is 12,000 stadia. That's 1,400 miles, by the way, so big. And it's as wide and high as it is long. So what's going on is he's describing this huge cube a 1,400-mile cube. And by the way, the U.S. is about twice that. So this is a city that's half the size of the United States, and it's a cube. It's gigantic. And it might be literal, might be symbolic, but what's important is this. It's describing a new temple, a new most holy place. And some of you might have heard this called the Holy of Holies. Now, in the Old Testament, the most holy place, it was the most innermost room of the temple and it was a 20 foot cube cubit cube and 20 cubits is about 30 feet so that's just about the size of this platform about 30 feet on each side and 30 feet tall and in the new Jerusalem it's going to be 1400 miles in all three dimensions this is an epic reconstruction project and what's in the important about this is in in the new Jerusalem the uh, I mean the old Jerusalem in the old testament the high priest would only enter that most holy place one time a year on the Day of Atonement after a bunch of purification rituals. One person, one time a year, and a 30-foot cube. Fast forward to the new Jerusalem. Now, all of us live in the new holy, most holy place all the time, all year long with God. Crazy off the charts. If you listen to the Bible Project, they talk about the Old Testament temple, the most holy place, as a place where heaven and earth overlap. They kind of meet because to the Jewish people, that's where the presence of God was most known, in that most holy place. Well, now, instead of having an overlap in the new most holy place, it's a full-on marriage. All the people of God living with God in the new Jerusalem, living with them every day, off the charts, Amazing. Well, the fifth thing we must notice is that it's a Christ-centered city. Not just God, but also Christ. Look down to verse 22. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And then verse 23 says, the city did not see the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb 
is its lamp. In both of those verses, God Almighty and the Lamb are connected. And if you're here today and you're new to Revelation, the most important verse to to circle, I think, is verse 3. We already highlighted that. God will dwell among us. And then the second one is verse 22 because it says there's no temple in the city because God and Jesus are its temple. The whole city is like a temple. So in fact, there is no temple in the city. God and Jesus are the temple. So this is like that HDTV illustration where there's the reveal and you open your eyes. And if you can imagine if while the couple was getting ready for the reveal, the revelation, the revelation of their new house, and they're expecting to see this new beautiful house, and they pull back the screen, and instead the crew is secretly invited, all their family, all their extended loved ones, past and present, and they open the curtain, and there's all the people of their life, all their loved ones, and right in the center is God. All of a sudden, you don't care what the house looks like, right? Because you're there with all these people that you love, and you're with God himself. So the presence of God, the glory of God, and his son Jesus are dwelling in the new Jerusalem with us. There's no temple in the city. The entire city is the temple. And again, this is a marriage of heaven and earth. Do you remember in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus taught us to pray and he said, on earth as it is in heaven, remember that? You pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the full answer to that prayer. This is what God's will is for us to live on earth with him and he dwells with us. Well, we're going to quickly move to chapter 22, just the first five verses. Because not only is God's presence in the new Jerusalem, but this new creation, this new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, the new creation is where God's people experience this crazy off-the-charts abundant life. If we look at a couple of these verses, look at verse 1. It says, the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God. And the Lamb. And if you happen to know the Genesis story, in Genesis chapter 2, we see the river flowing from Eden. It flows from Eden and waters the garden. And that's one of the reasons it's called the Garden of Eden. The river flows from Eden to the garden. But here, in the restored new Garden of Eden, now the river flows from the throne. The river comes right out of the throne. So the source of the river is God, God himself, because he's dwelling there now. The river is characterized as the water of life. Great symbolism all through the Gospels. You got to go check that out sometime. But the river is the water of life, abundant life. And then verse 2 talks about on each side of the river stands the tree of life. And you remember the tree of life back from the Genesis story, right? So this is the story of the restoration of Garden of Eden. And it bears 12 fruits, and the leaves of the trees bring healing to the nation. Now, in Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 3, there's one tree of life, and it's the source of eternal life. And one of the reasons Adam and Eve got tossed out of the Garden of Eden for a while is because God didn't want them to eat from the, the tree of life and have eternal life while they're in this state of sin. Who wants to live forever with sin? Nobody. So God graciously removes them from the Garden of Eden. We have a whole rest of the story of the Bible, and then God removes evil and sin from the earth. Well, now we can be back 
in the Garden of Eden with the Tree of Life. But there's an upgrade, this massive restoration. It appears from looking at this language that the tree is on each side of the river. So many scholars think that there's actually multiple trees of life in the Garden of Eden. Not just one, but multiple ones for all of us to eat from. And there's fruit every month. 12 months of the year, so the seasons are either really short or there's just life so abundant that these trees are just feeding us all the time. Again, it's probably symbolic, but the symbolism is meant to show us just how abundant and fruitful experience will be with God. And then verse 3 says there's no longer any curse. Well, that's going to be a good way to live. Right now, we live in a world that's has the curse because of sin. And by this time, sin is gone, evil is gone, so now we're living with no more curse. Greg Beale says it this way about this. He says, the curse of physical and spiritual death set on the human race by Adam in the first garden is permanently removed by the lamb in the last garden at the time of the new creation. And we are really, really gonna enjoy that. It's gonna be really good to live in a place with no curse. If this wasn't good enough, if this doesn't sound good enough for you, well, look at verse four. Look at what verse four says. And I, I told the nine o'clock that when I read this, I, I always have to pause a little bit because sometimes when I read this, that my spirit is wells up and I can barely talk, but it says we're gonna see God's face. We're gonna see God's face. Now, again, if you know the entire story of the Bible, because, again, we're at the conclusion of the entire story of the Bible, there's a progression about seeing God's face in the Bible. Back in Exodus chapter 33, Moses is told nobody could see God's face and live. If you see God's face, you're going to die because you can't be in the presence of a holy God in your sinful nature. So if you see God's face, you're going to die. And then as we progress to the Gospels, there's a great account in the Gospel of John in chapter 1 that says this, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is, is himself God, as in, in closest relationship with the Father. That's Jesus, obviously. And he's made the Father known to us. So, so what's happening there is we have the Old Testament says nobody can see God's face and live. And then Jesus comes. And now we don't see God, we see Jesus, who's an exact representation of God. And Jesus, part of the wonderful work of the cross, the atoning work on the cross, is that he reveals God the Father to us. So by seeing Jesus, we can indirectly see God. And that's a wonderful part of the work of the Son. But then here, now we get to the third part of this. Can't see God's face. We can see God through Jesus, but now... We directly look into God's face. Grant Osborne says it this way, that this is the culmination of some of the greatest hopes in the Bible. In the transformed Eden, God's people will both live eternally and see his face. And for some of us, that's just, we, it just brings chills to my spirit. Now, after 12 plus months of COVID, I have to tell you when he sees God's face, he's not gonna have a mask on. You're not just gonna see his eyes, you're gonna see his whole face. And faces are intimate. Faces are personal. You know, the only time you get real close to somebody face to face is one of two times. If you're 
beaming mad at them and you're just in their grill and you're yelling at them. Well, that's not going to happen in the New Jerusalem because sin is gone and the curse is gone. Evil is gone. So the only other time you get face to face with somebody is when you love them and you're intimate with them. And it doesn't have to be a romantic intimacy. If you're a parent here, you'll know that when your little kids are small, you do what Vicky and I did. When our kids were small, we didn't have the video cameras that we have now, right? So you, can't, you couldn't uh, look at them. So what do you do? You wait for them to get sound asleep. You don't want to go in too early and wake them up. But after they fall sound asleep, you sneak in the room and you just stand and you just stare at their face because they're beautiful. And God created them, this beautiful baby. And you look at their lips and usually they start scrunching up, you know, and they're just, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous, intimate way to look at another person. And that's how we're going to see God face to face, close up, personal, intimate. So what, what do we do with this? I mean, for, if you're hearing this, the first time you're hearing this, I'm, I'm a little worried for you because you're like, wow, that's a mind blow. And it is. It should be. This is, this is the good stuff. This is the epic ending of the book and, the, and, and of the whole Bible. So, but, but how do we react to it? How do we respond to it? Well, I, I think it depends a little bit on what kind of person you are. And I'm, I'm going to take some license here. If you allow me, I'm going to split the room into two groups, two groups of people. In general, there's destination people, and then there's journey people. If Let's say you're going to go on a hike. You're going to go on a hike. You say, I'm going to go hike up that mountain. Well, if, if, if you're a destination person, you're just ready to get to the top get to the top, drink in the views, you have accomplished the goal, we've reached the top of the mountain, and you're a destination person. But for others of you, you're more of a journey person. You don't really care if you get to the top, it's about the journey up, about conversing with your friends and seeing the beautiful streams on the way. Or another way you could think about this is, let's say you decide on your next vacation, when we could finally travel again, you wanna go to Italy and see Michelangelo's Statue of David. Because you've heard it's fantastic, and it is. You look at that statue, and it's so lifelike. It looks like the thing's going to walk off the platform. So you decide, we're going to go to Italy and see the statue of David. Well, if you're a destination person, that's your goal. That's what you want to go do. You want to go see the statue of David. But if you're a journey person, you're like, well, maybe we'll get to see the statue. Maybe we won't. But we're going to get to go to Italy. We're going to look at the Tuscan villages. We're going to have some Italian pasta. We're going to enjoy all this culture. So there's two different types of people. And after the 9 o'clock, one of the couples came up to me and said, he, he's, he's a journey person. I'm a destination person. Here's how we know why. We always decide we're going to go on a walk. And he says, well, uh, she says, well, where are we going to go to? And he says, I don't care, I just want to go on a walk. And she says, yeah, but where are we going? And he goes, it doesn't matter, I want to go on a walk. And you can see the difference, right? So it, not everybody's one or the other. We're all a little bit of both, but this matters. So if you're a destination person and you read this text, the application of it is super obvious, right? Because the destination is the new creation, living in the new Jerusalem. Our destination is giving us hope it's given an encouragement, and it's our eternal home with God. And that's me. I'm a destination person. I'm full on. I'm ready to go. Like, I read this and go, let's do it. Let's get there. But if you're a journey person, like my wife, Vicki, you might be asking, but that's cool. I like that. But why does that matter now? What am I going to do with that now? What am I going to do with that today? 
And this really became highlighted to me once when, when Vicki was in the low point of her cancer treatment and it was looking pretty grim and I was just trying to comfort her in reading this passage and she looks at me and goes, honey, that's great, but that's not going to help me tonight. When I wake up in the hospital room and I'm sick and I'm lonely and I don't feel good, I need Jesus today. So what do we do about that? Well, fortunately, we have this wonderful blessing in the scriptures that helps us out if, the, if you're a journey person. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. And you can turn there if you'd like. We're going to be there through the end. We're not going to come back to Revelation. But 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 3. Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, tells us how to live if you're a journey person. And all of us are a little bit of both, right? So 2 Peter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Peter says, above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. And by the way, the last days is talking about the entire time from the first coming to the second coming. The last days are the last days from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. So we've had 2,000 years of last days. And perhaps you've been scoffed at. I've been scoffed at. I remember vividly a time at work when my boss said to me about my faith, oh, you just need a crutch. He's scoffing at my need for Jesus. And I just responded to him saying, no, I don't need a crutch. I need the entire operating room because I'm having a heart transplant here. I need the Jesus heart transplant. And you need him too, by the way. Um, and we left it at that. So then in verse 9, we skip down there. And 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anybody to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Have you ever wondered why Jesus hasn't come back already? I mean, if, you know, if you're bold and you say, you know, Jesus, come on. Like, why aren't you coming back? What, what are you waiting for? I think Peter gives us the answer. He, he's patiently saving people every day. Do you realize that by the end of today, there's going to be more names in the book of life than there were at the end of yesterday? That should get you excited. Jesus is saving people as we're patiently waiting for him to come back. And he may just be waiting for the one sheep out of the hundred to be saved, and then he'll come back. So how do we live in wait for Jesus' return? Well, Peter graciously tells us it. Look down at verse 11. And this is where we're going to camp out for the end of our time today. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 11, says this. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And the day of God is the day of Lord. It's the day of Jesus' second coming. Since you are looking forward to this, which we are, right? We're really looking forward to this. The desti destination people really know this. Make every effort, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now, Peter, if you've studied the apostles, he's probably one of the most direct, bold, impulsive disciples. And I kind of like Peter. I kind of identify with him. And I think he was a destination person, but he also knows that he has to struggle with the journey along the way. So what he's saying here is as we look forward to the return of Jesus, this is how we ought to live. And, and the language is firm. It's a, this is how we must live. He says, make every effort. And then Peter throws out these five words that I've grouped into three sets just to make it a little bit easier on us today. He says we're to be holy 
and godly. And what Peter's talking about there is we're to live lives that are pure, set apart from the garbage of this world. By the way, this is how Jesus lived. Jesus was holy and godly. He lived a pure life and he was completely set apart from the garbage of the world. And then Peter says we're to be spotless and blameless. And that language is talking about being without sin and resisting the temptation of the evil one. By the way, that's the way Jesus lived. He was completely without sin, unlike us, but he also had to resist temptation from the evil one. That's the way Jesus lived. And then the third thing Peter tells us is that we are to live at peace with God. Tranquility due to the divine favor we have as a child of God. And oh, by the way, Jesus lived in peace and tranquility because he was the son of God. So you look at these three things and what I would like you to do is pick one of those three things. I've picked mine. I'd like you to pick one of these three things and ask the Holy Spirit, what are you going to do with me this week, Holy Spirit? How are you going to help me? Because that's what the Holy Spirit's here to do. He's here to help us. And, and don't be a high-need achiever. Don't pick all three. Just pick one of the three. Pick one thing. I've picked my one. Like I said, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You don't need to tell me what yours is. But during our time of worship and communion, I hope you talk to God, talk to the Holy Spirit and say, I need help. Maybe you're, maybe you're struggling with the garbage of this world. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride or something else that's polluting your life. And the Holy Spirit says, I want you to move out of that garbage dump. And I'm going to help you move. Or, or maybe you're struggling with resisting temptation. There's some particular habitual sin that you're regularly succumbing to and you need help. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you resist that temptation. And when that temptation comes, I'm going to come alongside of you and I'm going to help you. Or, or maybe you just simply need the peace of Jesus because the world we live in has been rough the last year, Right? Maybe you're anxious all the time or, or maybe you're angry a lot of the time and you just need more peace, the peace of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is coming here and saying, I want to give you peace. Jesus says, my peace I give you. It's a free gift of God, but we have to receive it. So maybe that's what you need help with. And I don't know which one of these three is yours, but, but pick one and go to prayer and worship as, as we go to that in just a second. But as we do... Those three things are about how we live the journey. And it doesn't matter if you're a journey person or a destination person. We're all a little bit of both. But as we live this journey with the Holy Spirit, keep our eyes on the hope of our future destination. Keep our eyes on the fact that Jesus is going to return and he's going to have this massive restor restoration project and we're going to live in it. And what's going to be beautiful about it is God himself will dwell with us and we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message that you've given us through the scripture. We thank you for what you've revealed through your divine, sacred, holy scriptures that one day you're going to come back. You're going to dwell with us. You're going to live with us. We're going to live in your presence and we're going to see you face to face. And the life is going to be so abundant. And in the meantime, we ask the Holy Spirit to come. Help us where we need help. Help us, Lord Jesus and all God's people.
Suleiman.